This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a wonderful window of wisdom on a wicked world. It's like the Joe Rogan show if Rogan was a rapidly deteriorating old codger that drools on his shoes. Oh, is that what you are? <laughs> uh, actually, that is me. I'm, you are a Joe, though. You know, I am Joe, Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here is my wonderful co-host. Amy, nurse Amy. nurse Amy. <laughs> That's right. Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. So hot, she's often blamed for global warming. <laughs> If there was such a thing. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, but you're going to get the unconventional medical wisdom, too. Whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times. But first, got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. I don't care. Actually, I do. I know you do. (laughs) And if you want to make an old man very happy, you're going to do as the lady says. But what happens if there's a disaster? The hospitals are out of commission. There's nowhere else to turn. Who's going to deal with your family's medical problems? Well, guess what? Your family just texted me and said it's you. <laughs> so you funny. better get off your duff. No, you should say they sent you a TikTok video or a something. A TikTok. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> TikTok, TikTok. TikTok video. That's right. So you better get off your duff, learn some stuff, and get some supplies, like maybe a good medical kit. Amy, do you know where to find some good medical kits? I do, I do. Store.doomandbloom.net. There you go. Before we get started, I just want to mention that the Book Excellence Award winning Fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook still is a number one bestseller on Amazon. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded and revised book, check the black and white version out on Amazon or the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. But I also wanted to share with you guys, I have a pre-order for a limited edition spiral bound color version. That's the color version in spiral bound. Now it's a two inch spiral bound, Uh (laughs) but... Um, we're waiting for the paper. There's a terrible paper shortage and I'm hoping to have them by mid July. They got to hand make those because the book is so thick. Uh-huh. They've got to punch out the holes and oh, sections. Geez. A 700 and page to, book they're punching. Yes. And then they have to hand wind the spiral into each book. Jeez. Yes, that's why I said limited edition. Wow. Okay. It truly will be. <laughs> so it's going to be a while, but you can... Not th- that long. But you can pre-order it, right? Ju- yeah, you can pre-order it. It'll be ready mid-July, fingers crossed, of 2022, if you're listening to this in the future. In the future. Well, today we're going to talk about the health benefits, among other things, of chamomile. Yes, a regular MD touting the benefits of herbal tea. How about that? Hey... You know, in times of trouble, you got to use all the tools in the woodshed. Here's Amy. Hey, Nurse Amy here, nurse practitioner and certified nurse midwife, also co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus the designer of quality medical kits and first aid kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I want to talk about the health benefits of chamomile. Soothing chamomile tea will not only improve your overall sense of well-being as you drink it, but it also provides a wide array of health benefits as well. It's well known for treating stomach upset and sleeping disorders, but did you know chamomile tea can also deliver much more than that? An herb belonging to the daisy family, chamomile tea is made from dried flower buds. 
Chamomile contains active ingredients which have antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory, and anti-irritant properties. The popular tea contains the amino acid tryptophan, which is actually a sedative and has a relaxing effect. Everyone who's ever eaten a turkey dinner has always heard, you're going to get sleepy afterwards. Well, that is the amino acid that's responsible for that. We use two to three tablespoons of dried flour per cup of hot water. Um, this helps to make, it's not too strong, it's not too weak, it actually tastes really good. And we leave that in for between five and ten minutes. It depends on how dark you want it. Sometimes I like it a little lighter, so I'll go more for the five minutes, but ten minutes is fine also. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the benefits of chamomile tea. There's about a dozen different ways you can improve your health with chamomile, believe it or not. Insomnia. Chamomile tea is great for soothing nervousness that can disrupt sleep and lead to insomnia. Of course, we're all worried about the economy, gas prices, no formula, short food shortages on the shelves now, but it's apparently going to get worse in fall of 2022. And not to be doom and gloom, but it's just reality. So maybe we all need some chamomile tea. It's a natural sedative, a great sleep aid to improve your quality of sleep or ability to even fall asleep. Drink three or four cups of chamomile throughout the day. You don't pile it all up at once at 10 o'clock at night, but you want to drink it through the day. So you sort of keep even keel. And when you go to sleep, it's just you're, you feel calm and you felt calm all day. So it's easier to go to sleep. You're not trying to fight all the demons you've been thinking about all day long that's driving you crazy and then try to drink a bunch of chamomile to put you to sleep. It's probably not going to work. Boost your immune, although I will say if you've been calm through the day and you need just a little extra, the chamomile tea before you go to sleep, probably work just fine. Boost your immune system. Chamomile tea has the capability to heal and soothe. Consistently drinking chamomile tea increases your level of hipparate. Hipparate helps to stimulate your immune system by fighting harmful bacteria. So if you've got a cold, a flu, or other viral respiratory infection, you might consider drinking some chamomile tea. Drinking the chamomile tea will not only help you recover, but it helps to work as a preventative measure, of course, because of the antioxidants. You want to alleviate some muscle cramps. People who drink regular amounts of chamomile tea increase their levels of the amino acid glycine. Now, glycine helps to soothe your nerves and reduce muscle contractions so you don't have as many cramps. It also reduces muscle spasms including easing menstrual cramps as well as the irritation and tension of monthly periods. PMS, folks, might work. Drinking two to three cups of chamomile tea daily might help treat symptoms of anxiety and depression. Makes sense if it's relaxing you. Studies suggest that consistently drinking chamomile tea can calm your nerves and reduce mild anxiety disorders. Sounds great. I think we all need that these days. Chamomile tea has long been known for its ability to help treat stomach upset. Some people suffering from irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, Crohn's disease, and diarrhea may actually find relief with this remedy. Plus, the antispasmodic and anti-inflammatory effects of the tea help to soothe the smooth muscle lining of the GI tract. By relaxing the smooth muscles, you actually get relief from the nausea and gas and even possibly heartburn. I know there's a lot of us out there that get heartburn. Yuck. Could be the stress, folks. Chamomile tea is also thought to help in treating colicky children. I wish I'd have known that when my kids were babies. Those looking for natural help in controlling diabetes might get some help from chamomile tea. 
Chamomile tea can help level out your blood sugar levels. In other words, when you eat sugar or carbs, what happens in your blood, if you don't take medicine to even it out or to metabolize it properly, you get a giant spike in the sugar levels in your blood. Chamomile tea helps to decrease that sudden spike in the, in the sugars, which of course overwhelms your body if you're not producing enough insulin. So that's actually a really good thing for people with diabetes. So you might want to incorporate that if you have type 2 diabetes or some sugar issues. Chamomile tea can help reduce the healing time of cuts, wounds, and burns. The antibacterial, antioxidant, and antimicrobial effects also can help prevent infection and injuries. So if you get hurt, you might want to start drinking some chamomile tea to help prevent infections. People suffering from canker or other mouth sores can find that chamomile tea makes a good mouth wrench. People who are undergoing um, radiation or chemotherapy may have issues with mouth sores. So this is also the type of patient that might do well with some chamomile tea mouthwashes. Chamomile tea is also a good way to help manage gum disease. Chamomile tea works to soothe hemorrhoids due to its anti-inflammatory properties. Some believe that it not only helps reduce the hemorrhoids, but eliminates them altogether. That sounds great. <laughs> for anyone suffering from hemorrhoids, they'll understand. To use chamomile tea for your hemorrhoids, use it as a rinse after completing a bowel movement. You can also press a moist chamomile tea bag directly onto the hemorrhoid to help encourage shrinkage and soothe inflamed nerves. The other thing I would consider is taking the chamomile tea and making cold compresses. And we're going to talk about cold compresses in just a second. But besides putting the tea bag in the refrigerator, you can also make the tea, put it on um, gauze squares or pads or even washcloths, stick those in the freezer or the refrigerator, depending on what you can tolerate. <laughs> and use those for cool compresses for say 10 to 15 minutes. Um, you know, whenever you want. There's You can't overdo it with compresses for sure. Chamomile tea can also help alleviate headaches, especially tension headaches. The tea contains compounds beneficial to stress-induced headaches. A nice warm cup of tea helps to dissolve your headache in no time. I would also use those cold compresses we talked about to put on the back of your neck, on your temples, and across your forehead. Those two areas really do help decrease headaches. I find when they're really bad, go into a dark room, put the compresses on, the cold compresses, make sure it's quiet and peaceful and stay there for at least 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, you might consider taking some Tylenol or ibuprofen also um, just to kind of help relieve the pain. But I do find that that helps um, some really bad headaches I've had. Um, so cold compresses in those two areas um, is something you should consider and, and tell your friends and family if they have headache issues. Eczema is an inflammatory skin condition that produces such symptoms as irritated, flaky, itchy, swollen skin. Chamomile, when used regularly, can help these symptoms get under control, which is what we all want. Use chamomile topically to treat these symptoms by allowing the tea to steep in hot water for 15 minutes. Dip a piece of gauze into the tea and apply directly to the affected area for about 20 minutes. Then remove the gauze and gently wash the dry area. So basically, you're doing the same kind of compresses, but instead of using cold, you're using warm. Now make sure it's not too hot. You definitely don't want to put really hot liquids on your skin, 
especially when you have issues with eczema. You might consider even trying the cool or the cold compresses for that too and, and see which one works better for you. Got a bad sunburn? The healing effects of chamomile tea also help to speed up the healing process of your sunburn while providing cool relief. Again, cool compresses with the chamomile tea. Um, you can brew the tea and then let it chill like we we're talking about. Um, but these healing compresses help make the sunburn go away faster. It's amazing. Uh, rosacea. Because of its anti-inflammatory properties, chamomile tea is a great way to get rid of symptoms of rosacea and get them under control. Using chamomile compresses on affected areas will help reduce the redness because it's anti-inflammatory and the inflammation, which can get out of control at times. Um, they're not exactly sure what causes rosacea. They're not sure if it's food allergies or something you're putting on topically, but eliminate all chemicals that you can. Uh, try to see if there's something you drink or eat that in a couple hours it gets redder or the next morning you wake up with the little white pimples in there um, and try to eliminate foods if you find that there's particularly something that um, affects it. Alcohol can also do it too. So be careful if you got um, rosacea about drinking um, too much or even any alcohol at all. To make chamomile tea presses, compresses, steep five chamomile tea bags in three cups of boiling water. So this is how you're getting a higher amount for a lot of compresses. After 10 minutes, remove the tea bags from the tea and place the tea in the refrigerator until the liquid's cold. Once it's cold, dip a cotton cloth, or again, we talked about washcloths, wring out the ex excess moisture, Place the compress on an affected area and let it sit for 15 minutes. Repeat this treatment up to about four times a day until you notice an improvement in your rosacea. Now, I would also put a maintenance program in place to where once you get it under control, I would do that maybe once a day if you can remember. Just, you know, keeping it under control because once it gets really inflamed and red and swollen, it, it's hard to make that go away. There are some considerations. It's always possible that anyone can have ill effects from any herb. So before drinking chamomile tea, just consider the following. Chamomile tea might trigger an allergic reaction. Certainly it's not what you want. <laughs> if you're allergic to things like ragweed, chamomile, celery, daisies, chrysanthemums, or marigold, you might actually want to avoid this tea, of course, if you are allergic to chamomile, you do not take chamomile, <laughs> obviously. If you're suffering from any health ailments, you might want to check with your physician before following uh, any of these protocols that we talked about or suggestions. Um, you know, if you've got a terrible medical condition and you're not sure if you could use chamomile tea, go ahead and ask them. They'll probably let you know. Chamomile tea might interact with the following drugs, blood thinners, NSAIDs like pain relievers, ibuprofen, for example, aspirin, sedatives, naproxen, and antiplatelet medications. It's not recommended to drink chamomile tea two weeks before surgery as it might have an interaction with the anesthesia. So you really want to avoid any kind of herbs unless the doctor has specifically told you it's okay to take because things like aspirin, they're not good to take before surgery. It could increase bleeding. So make sure you ask, can I drink chamomile tea. Chamomile tea might also interact with the following supplements, St. John's wort, valerian, salt palmetto, garlic, and ginkgo biloba. Before using chamomile tea topically on your skin, make sure to do an allergy test. 
um, put a little bit of tea on a patch, say your forearm, cover it with some gauze and leave it on for about 24 hours and see if you ended up with a rash or anything underneath there. There's currently not enough data to determine the complete and 100% safety of using chamomile while pregnant and nursing. If you're pregnant and nursing, it's probably better to avoid chamomile tea during this time. If you're not sure, ask your doctor. Ask your nurse practitioner or your nurse midwife. Please just ask them whenever you're wondering about whether you should do something during pregnancy and nursing. It's just better to get professional advice. Anyway, this is Nurse Amy. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Bye-bye. Portions of this show are brought to you by 9 out of 10 doctors. Have you been missing out on the conventional medical wisdom? Tired of being given options with regards to your medical care? Well, 9 out of 10 doctors agree that you should shut up and do what they tell you. 9 out of 10 doctors have offices in your neighborhood. They sure are great. See them today or take two aspirin and call them in the morning. I don't care. Talk to your healthcare provider to see if 9 out of 10 doctors are right for you. Seeing 9 out of 10 doctors can lead to cough, wheezing, diarrhea, chillblains, rheumatism, lumbago, apoplexy, and the vapors. You know, the off-grid medic has a lot to deal with with regards to medical issues. Bleeding, broken bones, burns, infections, all this stuff can lead to major challenges when you don't have modern medical facilities at your beck and call. Now, many of these problems result in loss of fluids from the body. Oral rehydration will replace what's lost, but what if your patient's unconscious? In normal times, that's where IV fluids come in. One study reported that almost 90% of hospitalized patients have an IV line placed. In a true long-term disaster scenario, hospitals are going to be few and far between, but injuries and infections, well, they're still going to occur. You're going to get by with oral fluids in some cases, or at least in most cases, but it's a good idea to know some basics about IV therapy as well. In the right hands, IV infusions are used to maintain hydration, balance electrolytes, replace blood, give medicine, even provide nutrition. IV fluid can save lives, but can also cause life-threatening situations if used incorrectly. Let's face it, giving fluids to a human is a lot more complex than pumping gas into a car. To understand basics of IV fluid administration, you really got to know some terms. Let's go over some. A solute is a solid that's dissolved in a liquid. A classic example of a solute would be salt in water. Salt is a solute that dissolves in water to form a solution, a solution. IV fluids that contain solutes dissolved in water are known as crystalloids. These are the options most commonly used to replace fluids and balance electrolytes. Fluids in a blood vessel may be inside the cells, intracellular, or outside the cells, extracellular. The fluid in blood vessels outside the cells, that's called plasma. The concentration of solutes or the osmolality of a particular IV fluid affects the pressure balance or tonicity of the plasma. Choosing the right IV fluid matters as it affects a lot of things, such as whether red blood cells remain stable or wind up shrinking or swelling. There are three main IV fluid tonicities, isotonic, hypertonic, and hypotonic. Isotonic fluids have a similar solute concentration to that normally seen in human plasma, so they don't cause significant pressure movement of fluid into or out of the patient's red blood cells. IV fluids in this group include the most commonly known, 0.9% saline, also called normal saline, lactated ringer's solution, and 5% dextrose in water. You would use these to replace fluids lost from dehydration. Now, why is 0.9% saline solution known as normal saline? 
1883, a Dutch scientist named Hamburger suggested that the concentration of salts in the human body was 0.9%. He said that a solution of equal concentration would be a normal content for IV fluids, and the name stuck. Then there's hypotonic fluids. Hypotonic fluids. Hypotonic fluids have lower concentrations of solutes than blood does. That results in a tonicity less than that of plasma. When cells in blood have more solutes in them than the IV fluid or plasma, they tend to swell, red blood cells that is, as osmotic pressure drives water into them. Hypotonic solutions are used when a patient has very high sodium levels or a condition that dehydrates cells such as, say, diabetic ketoacidosis. Examples include half-normal saline, that's 0.45%, and sterile water. Then there's hypertonic fluids. Hypertonic fluids have a higher concentration of solutes than blood does. They're typically used in critical care to treat very low sodium levels, which can cause fluid to accumulate in the lungs. The hypertonic solution will help remove excess fluid from red blood cells. And an example of this would be, let's say, dextrose 5% in 0.9% normal saline solution. That's a lot of solutes. Or even 3% saline that's used occasionally for very specialized reasons. Practically speaking, the family medic fortunate enough to have IV setups on hand and a supply of isotonic IV fluids will use them to replace fluids lost from dehydration or perhaps hemorrhage. Adjusting electrolytes like sodium with hypotonic or hypertonic solutions depends on knowing the level, usually identified by lab tests. With such tests scarce off the grid, that involves a lot of risky guessing. Deaths and survival solution from severe dehydration are going to be very common. They could be prevented by giving fluids like Ringer's lactate or 0.9% normal saline solution. This is called fluid resuscitation. Ringer's lactate is a mixture of water, calcium chloride, potassium chloride, sodium chloride, and sodium lactate. Most cases of dehydration can be improved with oral fluids. To identify dehydration, though, that is the important thing you have to realize when you're dealing with it. It requires IV resuscitation. You would probably see a lot of signs. Extreme thirst. You would see that there are decreased volumes of urine, and the urine that comes out is very, very dark. The pulse will be rapid and very weak. You may notice dizziness or fainting on the part of your patient. They may have dry mouth and lips, sunken eyes, fatigue, lethargy, and poor skin tone, which we call turgor. To check turgor, you pinch the skin of the forearm. Normally, the skin would snap right back in a normal person, but it will remain tented in victims of dehydration. Dehydration is more commonly seen in people who have a high fever or are diabetic, vomiting, alcoholic, or overheated. The question is how much fluid to give for someone who's dehydrated. For those over one year of age, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, recommends about 30 milliliters of Ringer's lactate, which is what's preferred, or normal saline per kilogram of body weight, and one kilogram equals 2.2 pounds, and you give that in the first 30 minutes, and then 70 milliliters per kilogram of body weight spread out over the next three hours. If not improved, you can continue this for longer periods of time. This might be necessary in someone with, let's say, cholera, where large amounts of fluids are lost as watery diarrhea. Signs of improvement would include a larger volume of and lighter-colored urine, stronger pulses, good skin turgor, resolution of vomiting, and less thirst. Once improved, the IV can be removed and the patient can switch to oral fluids. Oral rehydration salts are available commercially to mix with water, or you can make your own. The simple formula involves mixing six teaspoons of sugar and a half teaspoon of salt in a liter of water. 
you may choose to add a small amount of salt substitute for potassium and a pinch of bicarbonate baking soda to the mixture as well. A flavoring agent can also be added to make the solution taste better. Those recovering from dehydration, vomiting, or diarrhea should start with just frequent sips of the solution rather than gulping it down. Now, special materials are needed for IV infusions. A typical IV setup contains a number of components for the insertion and maintenance of the therapy. In the past, fluids like normal saline or Ringer's lactate used to come in glass bottles. Today, they're almost universally in sterile plastic bags. The bags may contain anywhere from 50 milliliters to 1,000 milliliters a liter of fluids. For dehydration, liter bags are best due to the volumes of fluid you're going to need to catch the person up and get them back to normal. Small bags like 50 milliliters, these are used to deliver, let's say, intravenous medications, although most IV bags have a port that allow injection of medications into the main bag. You'll need IV catheters. The IV catheter is a hollow plastic tube that's preloaded over a hollow beveled needle. The needle-tube combination is attached to a hub which remains above the skin. There's a small transparent chamber right behind the hub that allows the medic to see when blood from the vein is flowing into the catheter from a successful insertion. The catheter is then connected to tubing that attaches to the IV bag. IV needles typically range in size from 14 gauge to 24 gauge, a measure that tells you the internal diameter of the catheter. The higher the gauge, the narrower the catheter. Saline can be infused through relatively small gauge needles, but thicker fluids like packed red blood cells, let's say, they require larger gauges. Then, of course, there's IV tubing. This is known also as a primary infusion set, and it's the tubing that connects the IV bags to the IV catheter. The connection is usually a spike that inserts one end of the line into the bag. The set contains a drip chamber, what they call a drip chamber, that allows you to estimate the rate of the IV fluids going down the tubing. It also allows gases to rise out of the fluid and prevents passage down the IV line, which is important. Now, in order to control the rate of fluid going into the vein, there's a roller clamp that's provided just below the drip chamber. Primary infusion sets usually come with a port further down in which medications can be directly injected if they don't have to be diluted in the fluids. Extension sets are available for when additional lengths are needed. The entire line is flushed with fluid first to remove air before connecting it to the catheter. Then, of course, there are tourniquets, tape, and antiseptics. Alcohol or povidone iodine wipes are used to clean the skin at the site prior to the procedure. There's a thin tourniquet band, not like the military-style tourniquets that are meant to stop major bleeding. These are much thinner little rubber bands almost that are used above the contemplated site for insertion to make the vein more easily identifiable. Once the catheter is placed and the metal needle removed, Tegaderm or another adhesive is used to secure the line in place. Then you write down the date and time of placement. Okay, so how do you actually place an IV? Here are some tips that I think are, are pretty important. I certainly have had a lot of experience doing it as a resident in the large inner city hospital where I did my residency. First, you put gloves on and you connect the IV tubing to the IV bag. You flush the entire line out with fluid so it's ready to go. If the patient is right-handed, you usually want to choose a vein on the left arm, or and vice versa, if the patient's left-handed, you want to choose a vein on the right arm. You start with veins that are furthest out from the torso and you work upward. But if an IV is needed in an emergency, sometimes you need to place it in a very easily and quickly locatable position. That is right in the crook of the arm. There's usually a nice vein right in the middle. Then you apply the tourniquet snugly a couple of inches or a few inches above the needle insertion site. You have the patient clench and unclench their fist, and then you feel for the vein. It should feel bouncy compared to the surrounding tissue. Don't slap the vein, but some people flick it with their thumbs or and second th finger, and that may cause it to stand out a little more. 
you disinfect the insertion site with an alcohol pad in the direction of the venous flows. Once the alcohol has dried, pull the skin taut just below the entry site to stabilize the vein. Taking care to avoid touching the needle or catheter with your gloves, insert the catheter at a 15 to 30 degree angle right on top of the vein. Going from the side can push the vein sideways and cause you to miss. Make sure the bevel of the needle faces upwards to make it glide more easily. Once the catheter is within the vein, well, untie the tourniquet to prevent it from blowing due to an increase in pressure. Gently slide the needle back away from the catheter and out. Press a finger over the inserted catheter to prevent blood spillage while connecting the tubing. Tape the catheter securely in place and slowly loosen the roller clamp to begin the infusion. By the way, don't take blood pressures on that arm or at least stop the drip or you might have problems. Stick to the opposite arm if you can. There are many reasons, by the way, why intravenous therapy may be necessary, but many people are now undergoing treatment with IV fluids in situations other than medical emergencies. Some people even go to IV lounges where cures for hangovers, colds and flus, and other issues are touted. While hydration is part of the answer to these problems, it's important to know that there are risks associated with any IV therapy. One of them is infiltration. Infiltration occurs when the tip of the catheter slips out of the vein. This can happen during a faulty placement or with excessive movement. The IV catheter passes through the wall of the vein, resulting in leakage into surrounding tissue. That's bad. It tends to cause pain and swelling. You want to discontinue the IV and apply a warm or cold compress. There's disagreement as to which is best. And elevate the limb. Then there's extravasation. Extravasation refers to infiltration of fluids into surrounding tissues of substances that were in the IV fluid which can be hazardous, such as, let's say, chemotherapy drugs. It causes swelling and severe pain. In the worst cases, it actually can cause death of tissue, otherwise known as necrosis. In this case, you want to remove the IV line immediately. Then there's phlebitis. Phlebitis is inflammation of a vein. Improper insertion of the IV catheter can cause trauma that results in redness and pain and predisposes the area to infection. You want to remove the IV in this case and treat with warm compresses and anti-inflammatory drugs. In some cases, phlebitis can lead to the formation of a dangerous blood clot. That's called a thrombosis, and that can be very dangerous. Then, of course, there's infection. Whenever skin is broken, as during an IV catheter placement, the barrier to infection is weakened. Signs of infection include a spreading redness, warmth, tenderness, and fever. Close observation of an IV site is imperative to nip these infections in the bud. Improperly sterilized IV fluids, they can also cause problems. An infection in the blood caused by a contaminated IV can spread to the entire body and can be fatal. That's why it's so risky to try to make your own IV fluids. And that's why IV fluids are by prescription, because they are that sterile. Another problem is what we call overloading. Without careful monitoring of fluids going into the patient, overloading may lead to something called hypervolemia. The overloaded patient is going to exhibit swelling of extremities, increased blood pressure, respiratory distress, and other symptoms that indicate that there's just too much fluid in the body. You actually overloaded them, and this can actually be very, very dangerous. So what's a possible alternative to IV fluid if it's going to be so difficult to have them available in times of trouble? Well, the survival medic is unlikely to find, like I said, large quantities of this stuff in tough times, so you got to think outside the box. Sometimes you have to look at what was used in the past when an unconscious patient required fluids. During World War I, for example, over 100 years ago, a now controversial method was used called rectal rehydration. That's also called proctoclysis in the large inner city hospital where I did my residency. First, you put gloves on and you connect the IV tubing to the IV bag. 
you flush the entire line out with fluid so it's ready to go. If the patient is right-handed, you usually want to choose a vein on the left arm, or and vice versa, if the patient's left-handed, you want to choose a vein on the right arm. You start with veins that are furthest out from the torso, and you work upward. But if an IV is needed in an emergency, sometimes you need to place it in a very easily and quickly locatable position. That is right in the crook of the arm. There's usually a nice vein right in the middle. Then you apply the tourniquet snugly, a, a couple of inches or a few inches above the needle insertion site. You have the patient clench and unclench their fist, and then you feel for the vein. It should feel bouncy compared to the surrounding tissue. Don't slap the vein, but some people flick it with their thumbs or and second th finger, and that may cause it to stand out a little more. You disinfect the insertion site with an alcohol pad in the direction of the venous flows. Once the alcohol has dried, pull the skin taut just below the entry site to stabilize the vein. Taking care to avoid touching the needle or catheter with your gloves, insert the catheter at a 15 to 30 degree angle right on top of the vein. Going from the side can push the vein sideways and cause you to miss. Make sure the bevel of the needle faces upwards to make it glide more easily. Once the catheter is within the vein, well, untie the tourniquet to prevent it from blowing due to an increase in pressure. Gently slide the needle back away from the catheter and out. Press a finger over the inserted catheter to prevent blood spillage while connecting the tubing. Tape the catheter securely in place and slowly loosen the roller clamp to begin the infusion. By the way, don't take blood pressures on that arm or at least stop the drip or you might have problems. Stick to the opposite arm if you can. There are many reasons, by the way, why intravenous therapy may be necessary, but many people are now undergoing treatment with IV fluids in situations other than medical emergencies. Some people even go to IV lounges where cures for hangovers, colds and flus, and other issues are touted. While hydration is part of the answer to these problems, it's important to know that there are risks associated with any IV therapy. One of them is infiltration. Infiltration occurs when the tip of the catheter slips out of the vein. This can happen during a faulty placement or with excessive movement. The IV catheter passes through the wall of the vein, resulting in leakage into surrounding tissue. That's bad. It tends to cause pain and swelling. You want to discontinue the IV and apply a warm or cold compress. There's disagreement as to which is best. And elevate the limb. Then there's extravasation. Extravasation refers to infiltration of fluids into surrounding tissues of substances that were in the IV fluid which can be hazardous, such as, let's say, chemotherapy drugs. It causes swelling and severe pain. In the worst cases, it actually can cause death of tissue, otherwise known as necrosis. In this case, you want to remove the IV line immediately. Then there's phlebitis. Phlebitis is inflammation of a vein. Improper insertion of the IV catheter can cause trauma that results in redness and pain and predisposes the area to infection. You want to remove the IV in this case and treat with warm compresses and anti-inflammatory drugs. In some cases, phlebitis can lead to the formation of a dangerous blood clot. That's called a thrombosis, and that can be very dangerous. Then, of course, there's infection. Whenever skin is broken, as during an IV catheter placement, the barrier to infection is weakened. Signs of infection include a spreading redness, warmth, tenderness, and fever. Close observation of an IV site is imperative to nip these infections in the bud. Improperly sterilized IV fluids, they can also cause problems. An infection in the blood caused by a contaminated IV can spread to the entire body and can be fatal. That's why it's so risky to try to make your own IV fluids. And that's why IV fluids are by prescription, because they are that sterile. Another problem is what we call overloading. Without careful monitoring of fluids going into the patient, overloading may lead to something called hypervolemia. 
The overloaded patient is going to exhibit swelling of extremities, increased blood pressure, respiratory distress, and other symptoms that indicate that there's just too much fluid in the body. You actually overloaded them, and this can actually be very, very dangerous. So what's a possible alternative to IV fluid if it's going to be so difficult to have them available in times of trouble? Well, the survival medics are unlikely to find, like I said, large quantities of this stuff in tough times, so you got to think outside the box. Sometimes you have to look at what was used in the past when an unconscious patient required fluids. During World War I, for example, over 100 years ago, a now controversial method was used called rectal rehydration. That's also called proctoclysis. The large intestine functions to absorb water, electrolytes, and vitamins, but not nutrients, and it can't feed that way, and leaves solid waste. It stands to reason that if the colon can absorb fluid introduced from above, it should be able to absorb it if it's introduced from below. The benefit of rectal rehydration is that sterilized water or premixed oral hydration solutions may be used effectively via the rectum to improve fluid status. This provides an inexpensive and readily available avenue whenever intravenous fluid is not available. To perform proctoclysis, you're going to need some materials. You'll need sterilized water, normal saline, or an oral rehydration salt solution, some form of fluid to introduce into the body. And then you would need some other items. You can use a nasogastric tube or a Foley catheter. Uh, a reservoir container, of course, is necessary to contain the fluids. Tubing to connect the reservoir container to the NG or Foley catheter. Gloves, of course, and lubricant. And you need some way to regulate the rate of infusion of the fluids, which should be about 250 to 400 cc's an hour in cases of severe dehydration. You want to also have a way to secure the tube in place so it doesn't just fall out of the patient. And many times people use a stand to place the reservoir of fluids at a high level higher than the patient so gravity will allow it to actually go down and pass into the patient. And of course, it's always useful to have equipment to monitor vital signs. The fluids you use should be warm to normal body temperature to prevent hypothermia. You want to place the patient on their left side because that seems to decrease leakage. And you want to closely monitor vital signs throughout the procedure. If you're using a nasogastric tube, it can be inserted further into the large intestine than a Foley catheter can, which is actually not a bad idea. If you have a nasogastric tube, which is a medical supply that you can indeed buy, this might result in improved absorption. A Foley catheter, however, actually will prevent much of the leakage that you might experience with the NG tube because they have an inflatable balloon that can act as sort of a plug and not let fluid out through the, through the anal area. The nasogastric tube is inserted about 15 inches, but the Foley needs to be inserted only about 5 to 8 inches before you fill the balloon with water from a syringe, then pull it back gently until the balloon meets resistance, and then you should have a seal. An enema effect may be observed, by the way, if you give high volumes of fluid too quickly. If this is observed, you should stop immediately because the patient's losing fluids. You're using this procedure in an effort to give them fluids. It's important to know that proctoclysis is not, or rectal rehydration is not for feeding. It has never been used for that purpose or at least successfully for that purpose. It's also been used, by the way, as a method of torture in the past. It is not fun. So it's something you give maybe somebody who's unconscious or is at the point where you just have to try something. Never try this procedure. If there's any modern medical help available, it is better than what you can do yourself. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.